Hi, welcome to the analysis.news podcast. I'm Paul Jay. Please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. On Monday, House Democrats formally introduced their resolution to impeach President Trump, charging him with incitement of insurrection for his role in last week's deadly U.S. Capitol attack. There's also a resolution being put forward by Congressman Jamie Raskin calling on Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. Now joining me to discuss Trump, the riot, and the storming of the Capitol building on January 6th, and the response of the Democratic Party is Matt Taibbi and Norman Solomon. Matt is an award-winning investigative reporter and contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and he writes a top-rated column on Substack. Norman is the founder of Institute for Public Accuracy and is co-founder and national director of the online organization RootsAction.org. He was also elected as a Bernie Sanders delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 2016 and again in 2020. And he's also been the coordinator of the independent Bernie Delegates Network. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Matt, you kick us off, Matt. What do you make of these events of, of January 6th? And then what do you make of the response of the Democratic Party so far? Well, that's a that's a tough question. Obviously, it's the end of a long and painful sequence of events. Um, I I think this is fundamentally an expression of the problem of information in this country. We clearly have a significant number of people who um, are now believing things that just aren't true. Uh, and then we had a president who took uh, measures that were unprecedented in, um, you know, in their unpatriotic breadth. I think even, you know, in some past episodes like Bush v. Gore, we always, the political parties always came to a point where they said, you know, for the good of the country, let's just put it aside and go forward. Trump didn't do that. He's going to be impeached for that reason. Now it looks like, and um, that, that seems appropriate to me. Uh, the 25th Amendment question, I think, is a little different. Uh, having done a little bit of a couple of stories on, the, on that issue, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's going to work because that re- relies upon a definition of incapacity, and I don't think he's incapacitated. Uh, it's impeachment seems more likely to me. Uh, Norman, well, I agree with what Matt said. Uh, I've been thinking about how there's a baseline of lies that has been uh, very. Uh, ongoing from the Oval Office and whoever has sat behind the desk there. But what we've seen in the last four years is not just lies about what is going on in other countries and about machinations from uh, the U.S. government, but it's been gaslighting lies. So it's very empirical when Trump has said things that are so clearly uh absurd and just so it's who you're going to believe him or your own eyes sort of thing and that has had a cumulative effect of trying to i think gain the allegiance of people who say they are going to believe him over whatever part of their brain you know used to function about something that's empirical so you know the famous statement that uh trump made about he could shoot somebody on fifth avenue and his his followers wouldn't mind you know that that's been borne out at a lot of different levels 
Uh, I think it's important, and I know we've both discussed this. I mean, I've discussed it with Matt and you, Norman, uh, before. But I think before we dig further into January 6th, I think we should just remind ourselves in, in this conversation that maybe it was the pandemic that lost Trump the election. But the other side of that, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, this guy who was capable of doing these things probably would have been reelected. Uh, you know, it's in all likelihood, if he can get 74, 75 million votes after such disastrous handling of the pandemic, uh, he, he may well have won. Uh, Matt, uh, I know we talked about it before, but I don't think we should forget that, like, this is who Trump really is and has been. And he could well have won this election. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I. I think we have to ask ourselves, why Why is that the case? And there are some pretty troubling answers to that question. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of discussions with friends and media about this where, you know, do, do people believe Trump? Do they follow him against all empirical evidence or, or against all seeming empirical evidence because they're crazy or because of decades of feeling alienated from the truth and feeling that they can't trust institutional sources as much as they used to. And I, I've definitely noticed in covering presidential elections dating back to the early 2000s that there's been a progression in this feeling of distrust towards news reporters and towards commercial media that, for me, 100 percent contributes to the Trump phenomenon. And throughout his presidency, I think that's been we, we've seen that develop but you know as crazy as he's been there just hasn't been this commensurate um effort to try to win people back or, or to successfully win people back that um and i think that's troubling like again he, he needed the, the the pandemic to lose and i think that's that speaks to some pretty remarkable institutional failures yeah you know i think when uh, richard nixon resigned he still had about one third of the country that was bedrock support and the way in which the U.S. news media, the mainstream media, I think it took uh, two or three years into the administration of Trump uh, before uh, outlets like CNN or the New York Times would say that he was lying. And that has become routine, you know, better late than never. Uh, but it took a while. And that should give us pause because when somebody comes around who is slicker at deception, then we may revert to the euphemisms, which, which don't help. But that said, um, as Trump has shown, he doesn't need to get support from what we call the mainstream media because he's got his own stream of the mainstream media. And uh, you know, it goes to questions that have been written about by Wilhelm Reich and others. You know, what is that mass psychology of fascism and we've got a lot of that psychology that has been brought to the surface uh, in recent years. Uh, I was recently watching this series on Showtime called The Reagans, and I've interviewed the director. I'm going to be running that soon. And, and I think sometimes this Trump phenomena is a little bit too much look like it's like it's a unique phenomena. And I think this the the bulk of the Trump politics and the bulk of the Trump supporters are not all that different than the Reagan campaign, including all the racism and, and the constituency that supported Reagan. 
and you and you can go back further to Goldwater, and then to go back to the the the, the popular support for McCarthyism and the House of Un-American Activities Committee, which is rooted in all the propaganda that came out of World War II and the, the, the sort of fervor uh, of, of on two sides. In 1946, after the war, you have more strikes in the United States than any time before or any time after. The rise of working class militancy was met with McCarthyism, and you've had this progression where the media is fully plays along with all the assumptions of the Cold War and Reaganism. And then it, it just becomes a, a partisan fight with Trump, but the underlying assumptions don't really change on part of any of the media. Uh, so this whole culture of the rise of this kind of fascization of the culture, that Trump is sort of a, I, I've been calling him the buffoon tip of a fascist spear within a larger fascization that takes place, which includes the leadership of the Democratic Party. Uh, and it's not like these are evil people. This is a kind of an objective process that's unfolding when you turn most of the power over to Wall Street and financialization. So, uh, Matt, I don't know. I just a riff. <laughs> what do you think? Um, I, I, I think I would disagree a little bit there. Uh, Trump, he definitely ran whatever, however he governed, he ran as a populist outsider and as a critic of the intelligence services and of, you know, at least sometimes the military, the war effort, uh, corporations. Uh, whereas, you know, Reagan was full bore, you know, a, re a reactionary who ran on pride and, uh, you know, belief in free market capitalism and the military and the military buildup. Uh, he was a friend of institutional America in the way that Trump was not. Uh, Trump, you know, certainly he, he echoed a lot of the themes that Reagan did, and, and he certainly stole from a lot of the emotional tenor of the Reagan movement, including the slogan, Make America Great Again, which was taken from Reagan. Uh, and even the whole idea of nostalgia for a lost era that never existed. I mean, the symbolism of having Scott Bayo be the opening speaker at the, uh, at the Republican National Convention. I mean, he, li he literally ran on bringing happy days back, which was very similar to what Reagan did. But their orientation as politicians, I think, was very different because the, the, the population had changed a, a significant amount uh, from 1980 to now. There's just so much more anger uh, directed at the system than, than there might have been in 1980 when, yeah, Reagan won white Democrats in, you know, places like uh, Macomb County, Michigan, by appealing to patriotism. But this time, those same voters were uh, upset about a whole bunch of other things that, that, that Trump also talked about. Um, and he was, he was lying in his appeals, but, but I think it was a different appeal. A uh, well, his Reagan's big slogan was uh, government's not the solution to the problems. Government is the problem. I mean, he ran sure, against yeah. he ran against government. I mean, it's all BS because Trump loved the military. He certainly didn't mind that institution. Uh, but I agree with you. There's a there's an angrier edge here, which is to do with a lot what's changed in the country. 
but but he ran he ran against NATO. He talked he talked about why aren't why aren't all those other countries paying their NATO dues? What well, these these foreign wars are a bad deal. I mean, he was very conscious about when he when he invoked those themes and when he didn't. He you know following him around the campaign trail, like I was always careful to notice when you when he brought that out. It was always in places where there were lots of returning vets. Uh, and, you know, and people in the audience and the, the, the reddest red state areas, he would pull out those themes. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. I just think that he was he was going for a slightly different vibe in, in, my, in my view. And the rhetoric was quite different. And the vibe that he created and accentuated, amplified, tapped into was different. And yet, particularly in governance, he was carrying the mail for the same people basically that George W. Bush carried for and preceding especially Republican presidents. And I think that explains why whatever personality clashes or McConnell didn't want to go to the White House because he wanted to wear a mask, that sort of thing. Underlying it, you know, the symbol of it is Jeff Flake, who was, you know, thrilled to vote for the Supreme Court nominees. So, you know, and that of course is uh, an explanation largely for the evangelicals wrapping their holy arms around him as well. He delivered. He's delivered for the right wing, for the classic, very conservative, uh, reactionary Republican agenda. And now that's where I, you know, I come back to this phrase that is sort of out of fashion, uh, but uh, there's a split. There are actually splits, plural, in the ruling class. And that's even within the more uh, conservative right wing uh, sectors. And they're, uh, especially since uh, last Wednesday, they are in somewhat of a disarray. Uh, that said, I think that the Democratic Party has a lot of uh, potential uh, splits ahead, and some of them could be constructive. But uh, this is uh, sort of pickup sticks right now, a lot of confusion. Uh, Matt, do you consider the Trump and or the movement or sections of that back Trump, essentially fascist, uh, part of a fascization? I mean, I think there are elements to that, but I always thought Trump lacked the discipline, the intellectual consistency, the impulse for political organization, uh, and the ambition to be a fascist in any real sense. You know, ha- again, having watching him campaign his campaign was essentially him. He didn't have a massive ground game. He went from city to city improving uh, and and thinking up his speeches on, on uh, off the top of his head. And we saw over the course of four years, yes, he 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 did occasionally implement things where there was agreement with the sort of uh, existing Republican establishment, like the two thousand and seventeen. Uh, massive uh, tax giveaway, right? Um, but where it would have required a more ambitious overhaul or something more far-reaching, he, he didn't have that strategic uh, discipline. This, and he was never able to maintain relationships with people like Steve Bannon, who might have been able to carry it out. There, there was no Dick Cheney to George W. Bush in this White House. And so I, I was always a little bit less concerned about that than maybe some other people were. Uh, Norman? Well, uh, personally, he didn't have a uh, no requisite combination of qualities to uh, really pull uh, together maybe a fascistic 
movement uh, or make the party thoroughly uh, fascistic per se. But his uh, sort of low, his uh, guiding star was him, himself, his megalomania. You know, it's uh, beyond my expertise of um, if it's simply an extreme personality disorder or what kind of mental illness or, uh, you know, psychopathy uh, he might uh, be immersed in. But the fact is, it is ultimately all about himself. And you could almost do a thought experiment that if six, eight, 10 years ago, before he came down the golden escalator, he decided that the glory, all glory to him would be more likely if he ran as a Democrat or a liberal Democrat. I'm not saying he would have done well, but if he thought that was a pathway, uh, you know, it's, he's, he's, he's a sicko and it uh, sort of clashes with the classic Marxist idea that individual personalities uh, and uh, psychological makeup of one person uh, doesn't change history. The, the economic social forces do. Well, the economic social forces do have huge effects, but still in all, the individuals really can make a huge difference. And I think uh, part of the takeaway now, uh, and some of the mainline media are, are articulating this, is that this uh, supposedly impregnable democratic system is extremely vulnerable, including even what's in the Constitution, that is, uh, the executive branch is foundering around and the legislative branch is foundering around right now. Uh, so I think underlying it, and especially for people who have, you know, what we call liberal or progressive values, uh, this is a, a, a very hazardous moment because even though Trumpism uh, may lose Trump, and even though that particular unique set of personal capacities, and he is shrewd in, in his own desires, we're still going to be left with, uh, as we've been talking about, this uh, tremendous uh, base of people who want to believe lies. Uh, they're propelled by nativism, racism, sometimes uh, misogyny, uh, a vision of national salvation. That's extremely dangerous, and they're able to coalesce and in some at least semi-haphazard way to organize effectively. Yeah, I just want to jump in quickly and, 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 and agree with uh that I mean, if you go back and look at Donald Trump's the way he was talking in 1999 when he was thinking about running as a Reform Party candidate, uh, I mean, he he, he sounds for all intents and purposes like a modern Democrat in a lot of ways. I mean, there are some differences, but clearly he he was very very interested in being taken seriously by that that sector of society, and it just so happened that that. He was never go he was never going to be able to be taken seriously as a Democrat, and I think on some level psychologically he realized that, and this is why he moved over, um, you know, towards towards this incarnation of himself. He, he's completely without principles, and he just he just has an incredibly powerful uh, nose for how to attract attention and how to get crowds together and how to animate crowds, and you know, the content I think always thought was less important to him. Than the than the impact. I think the, the diff, one of the diff, biggest differences between Reagan and Trump is that Reagan was packaged by what they called the kitchen cabinet. He was recruited by a bunch of millionaires, which in today's terms, I guess, would have been billionaires. He was an actor playing the part of the face of this extreme globalization, the attacks on the unions, and so on. Um, he, he was always in control of the forces that brought him to power. 
Trump was not supposed to be the, the guy. He was not the anointed guy. They thought, I think they figured, they being the forces that control the Republican Party, they thought they were going to have another Bush. And the, uh, even the far-right crazy money, which I mean by Robert Mercer and, and his group, which included Bannon and Kellyanne Conway, you know, they thought it was going to be Cruz. Um, but I think what's happened to both the Democratic and the Republican parties is the internet and social media has, has really changed things. And as much as it allowed Bernie Sanders to raise money and run a real horse race uh, against uh, Hillary, uh, it's, uh, and, and again against Biden if, if, it, if they hadn't all ganged up to bury Sanders. Um, but in the Republican party, the same thing happened. Uh, this internet and social media allowed Trump to emerge out of that Republican convention victorious, even though he was bankrupt, more or less. And then you've got this weird fracture in the billionaire class where a few crazy right-wing billionaires can anoint a president. So Robert Mercer comes in, brings his team from Breitbart over to uh, elect Trump. You get Sheldon Edelman's 25 mil and then more. Uh, the bottom line here, I think, is that to a large extent, the elites have lost control of a process they so fully controlled before. And it's interesting, that letter that the 10 former secretaries of defense uh, published warning the military not to get involved if Trump tried to involve them in, in creating martial law, uh, as Flynn called for. And in fact, there's an article by another general that says that letter was a direct response to Flynn's call for martial law in a new election. Get, I just, I mean, maybe you guys saw this before. I didn't realize who actually organized that letter. Dick Cheney. He's the one that got the 10 guys together to do the letter. So, and his daughter is the moderate now, this yeah. day, you know, so, in the Republican Party, which tells you how there's been this, this shift, you know, with a baseline. Uh, and part of, sort of the characteristic of fascism is that the goalposts keep moving and we keep being encouraged to say, oh, well, that's not fascism, or we would have been shocked uh, a year earlier. Uh, maybe this is an oxymoron. I don't know. Uh, the mainstream elites are very upset with where things are going, but the, the Mercers, the, the Adelsons, uh, they put their money down with some really good investments. You know, I have on my desk here this brilliant book, Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. And uh, there have been a number of good studies like that one showing that billionaires have really, uh, extreme right-wing billionaires have really done some very cagey investments, including at a certain point when there was a tipping point for Trump that he was going to be the nominee. They put their money on him. And uh, for a lot of what they care about, uh, they got what they wanted in spades, and okay, now he's not uh, completely reliable. He's gone uh, off the deep end, so you know they'll toss him. But politicians have always been expendable. I think we could say, in a sense, there's been a sort of a, a inflation of lies, you know, and also of Orwellianism. I mean, when I was a teenager, I used to watch uh, one of the three TV channels, and Lyndon Johnson would say in very grave tones. What we're hearing in the last few days, that nothing can be solved by violence. And he was ordering these B-52s to slaughter people in Vietnam. You know, so like if you had any uh, cognitive ability to, you know, understand what's in the book 1984 and what Orwellianism is, back then the lies were flagrant. But what's happened now is it's become so overt and so extreme. It's some sort of like mind rot 
where you have uh, an important segment, arguably the majority of the so-called leadership of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party, the GOP folks, including 140 members or so of the House, who are uh, willing to say that, you know, we want your brain to just um, uh, go into, uh, you know, synapse destruction so that you can't reason anymore. And certainly that seems to be a good runway for fascism to take off of. Matt, go ahead. Um, yeah, no, I would. I definitely think that uh, what you were saying about the difference between you know Reagan being the front man and Trump not being one, um, that's important because Trump was actually he. One of the things he ran against was the stage managing of the presidential election process and the fake, uh, the fake aspects of it. Right, like he he went up on stage and he wasn't an actor that was the, that was his entire appeal to his audiences but it was that you weren't looking at um you know some exquisitely uh, designed hoax that was uh you know some billionaire's creation you were looking at a real living breathing farting human being uh with all his flaws and you know additionally he was he was running against the way that the press covered that whole uh, charade previously, where we used to all the time praise candidates who completely didn't deserve praise for qualities that were completely non-existent. So we would call people like Jeb, Jeb Bush, uh, you know, or he, he would be the credible candidate or the more credible candidate than, than somebody else like Ron Paul, or we would arbitrarily decide uh, that Hillary Clinton was was uh, worth being taken was a serious candidate. Dennis Kucinich wasn't a, se- a serious candidate, or Bernie Sanders wasn't a serious candidate. And these were all elite pronouncements. Uh, and the voters caught on to this. You know, over the years, they caught on to the fact that we were selling them all kinds of things that were fake. And Trump was just very canny in in recognizing that people had lost their patience with some of this, and he presented himself as, as a realistic, uh, authentic solution. Of course he wasn't, but the reason he succeeded was, was because there was that element of phoniness, uh, that existed previously. And I, I, I think people forget that. Like you go back and look, you know, there was $150 million behind Jeb Bush and he got three delegates, which it, it tells you about the level of disgust that Republican voters felt for being told whom to vote for. Um, and yeah, so that, I, I just think that's an interesting sideline to the whole Trump phenomenon is that he, he was getting a bounce from uh, previous failings. That, that, that's a great point. And I think that uh, Trump intuitively, perhaps, I don't know how much he learned from Roy Cohen, but it's sort of like a rhetorical uh, judo where there's this classic moment in one of the uh, final debates with uh, uh, last year uh, with... Uh, Biden, where we've got Trump saying, oh, you just sound like a politician, you know, with a very, uh, very <laughs> deft jab, you know, puncturing, puncturing the balloon. And, um, you know, we, we used to say under Reagan that he was like uh, the character in the novel uh, and the film being there, you know, Jerzy Kosinski was somebody who he was schooled in and he was then great at being like somebody on TV. And, uh, whether it was training or just natural uh, affinity, it was, you know, so people would say, wow, you're real because you're like somebody that I see on TV. 
And then, which is fake. <laughs> yeah, really. You're good at, you know, faking uh, not hard if you work at it. And um, how do you compare? And I'm not sure what the answer to this is the Reagan capacity, which was great. He was good at that. And Trump, you know, Trump almost trumped Reagan at just seeming like he was just somebody stumbling around and being real with you. Something I, I wanted to bring up is that um, I think Bernie Sanders, as usual, has been very cogent in recent days uh, in response to what happened uh, on January 6th. And he's saying something that the mass media right now have virtually no appetite for. I just wrote a piece about, which is that, yes, we've got to condemn and challenge and impeach, et cetera, and uh, push back as hard as we can against Trump and the forces that he's unleashed. But the reality is that Trump was created by the way that business as usual functions and the way that the class oppression or whatever phrase you want to use for it has immiserated people, the poverty, the economic insecurity and all of that. And that unless and until the Democratic Party gets off of its elite high horse and its uh, capacity to simply weld its future to Wall Street and the big banks and so forth, then there's going to be this constituency that uh, Trump has enlivened that could triumph next time with somebody even more adept. And I just think it's notable that while uh, Bernie is saying that and some progressives are saying that, right now you look at cable news and the elite media and it's very hard to find that theme coming through. Yeah, go ahead. Totally man. agree with that. Yeah, no, and, that, and that's been a, I remember talking to Bernie about that right after the 2016 election. Uh, and talking about how the party now basically ne needs to try to call Trump's bluff and, and try to, if, you know, if he proposes, uh, certain things like he, he did propose universal health insurance on the, on the, uh, campaign trail. Let's see if he really means that. Let's see if he really is in favor of drug reimportation or, you know, reducing the military budget or whatever it was, because he, he, he would say all things at all times. Um, because it was important, I think Bernie felt to examine the the things that drove people to make this decision. Uh, instead, you know, this has been a consistent criticism of mine is that um, the both the Democratic Party and a lot of people in news media took the opposite route of not really digging into some of the underlying reasons, and because of that. Uh, you know, just being a wall of condemnation is not going to change the problem. You, you know, they're they're not making an effort to try to to try to look at what the, their the actual underlying reasons might be, and whether there are things that they could say that could actually change minds or or, or help solve the problem. And I and so I I just I totally agree with that. I think that's the and, and it's significant that 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 uh, Bernie's point of view on that is being frozen out of the press. So Biden's going to be president one way or the other uh, in, what is it, a few days. And both of you have been quite critical uh, of the Democratic Party in different ways. Um, wh what are your expectations of the Biden administration? And, and what, do you, what are your expectations of the progressives, AOC, the squad and such? Uh, because there's lots of argument and debate going on about all this on the left right now. Matt, why don't you start? I guess what I'm anxious to see is 
what does the term progressive mean going forward? Uh, because the version that Bernie Sanders uh, you know, campaigned on in 2016 and 2020 was a starkly anti-corporate message uh, that was based on hardcore pocketbook issues, income inequality, labor rights, that sort of thing. Now, there's a version of the future going forward where somebody like AOC uh, maybe de-emphasizes some of those things in favor of cultural issues. Uh, and we see propagandized in the press uh, a more superficial version of what was a real conflict within the Democratic Party in the last four years, a real schism, um, you know, between the the candidate who didn't take any corporate money and the, all the candidates who did, like Joe Biden. Uh, that's what I'm curious to see is what, going forward is um, what is what is the does that schism still exist? Is there going to be a vigorous debate about things like lowering the defense budget and uh you know, pulling back from our aggressive foreign policy stance and really trying to, you know, implement antitrust laws and taking on, uh, you know, medical, uh, you know, complex, uh, trying to push through something like Medicare for all, reducing student debt, or are we not going to have any of that? And we, are we going to have a version of basically the Obama years where, you know, we only have a superficial nod to a few issues here and there. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be curious to see, and I'm very curious to hear what Norman says about this, because, um, you know, from the perspective of the Sanders people, I, I, I just, it's very interesting to see what happens with what they built over the last four or five years. I think that's a really key question. What do we mean by the term progressive and how does that play out in practice by the actual concepts that people are moving ahead on? As an organizer with RootsAction.org, I've been really immersed in this two-phase campaign we've had. First, vote Trump out. We put a lot of uh, energy and, frankly, money, staff time into several swing states. And there was always a second part to that. We said, vote Trump out, then challenge Biden. And now we've launched the No Honeymoon campaign at NoHoneymoon.org. And we found that among some people we worked with at the grassroots, they really meant it to challenge Biden. And they're with us and we're working together and we're challenging several of the corporate and militaristic uh, nominees to the cabinet and so forth. And we're gonna be doing that throughout January and February, but we're also getting some real blowback and we're getting messages like we were with you to vote Trump out at Roots Action, but what the hell are you doing now with your nohoneymoon.org campaign? Because we got to give him a chance. Look at what Biden is up against. Why are you undercutting him? And our response is that Barack Obama was up against a lot. When he came in in 2009, the economy had absolutely cratered, and he proceeded to bail out the big banks and let millions of people with their houses underwater suffer and have tremendous losses. You know, the aggregate value of their homes, especially elderly people and others, it just went through the floor. And he proceeded to be largely a gift to Wall Street with some phony populist rhetoric in. 
And then two years later, the Republicans in 2010 took over Congress. What happened with Bill Clinton? Very similar. Bill Clinton was somebody who came in with the rhetoric. We were told to give him a chance. Uh, then we got uh, the uh, so-called uh, reforms that he put in. Uh, he uh, brought in NAFTA. Crime bill, welfare reform. Crime, well, so-called welfare reform, crime bill, repeal of Glass-Steagall later on. So, uh, and two years later in 1994, of course, the contract uh, on America that was called Contract for America was a Republican takeover. So are we supposed to do this a third time? Are we supposed to give the incoming Democrat for the third time in a row all the space to collapse into corporate America so that the Republicans with their phony populism can come back because Democrats haven't provided genuine populism to latch onto and get behind? So I think that this is a, an unresolved battle. Uh, while there are some good picks, mostly sub-cabinet, for the most part, these are standard issue corporate Democrats who are put into the cabinet. And I think it's very telling, although rarely mentioned, there's not one single cabinet nominee from Biden who is an authentic part of the Bernie Sanders revolution, the political revolution. It's an exclusion that's quite intentional. Uh, while we have people like Neera Tandon nominated to Office of Management and Budget, you know, one of the most virulent and uh, powerful private sector think tank anti-progressives in the Democratic Party universe. So, um, you know, speaking for Roots Action, we're organizing like crazy. And we're intent that throughout this year is the No Honeymoon campaign. But beyond that, working in coalition with many groups that are going to impose, uh, oppose the and, and be willing to fight against the uh, default uh, militarism of the incoming Biden administration and the corporatism. And that's, I think that battle has to be joined if we fall back and let uh, the back to the future Biden people uh, work their way on the administration and the country. It simply gives more fodder and power to the right wing uh, to come back in terms of grabbing control of Congress again. And it also damages our prospects for the future we need. Yeah, and just to, just to tie that in with what I was saying in the beginning, the that moment that Norman talks about where Obama got elected and the economy was in crisis and there were there was this very uh, telling uh, opportunity there for him to make a dramatic stand on behalf of people who were in real trouble and they, they took a very very consequential decision to execute this bailout, which was, you know, an even more aggressive continuation of the bailout policies that had begun under Bush before, before uh, Obama got elected, and that, I, you know, I, that that this, that one decision ended up having consequences that that I think continued on through 2016 and laid the laid the groundwork for an argument that Trump made, um, especially against Hillary Clinton. You know, given her closeness to the, a lot of those banks, um, you know, so yeah, it's it's incredibly important to define uh, what exactly the Biden administration is going to be early, because that'll probably have a lot of impact on, you know, what how much leverage the Republicans have four years from now or eight years from now, and what kind of person we end up getting as a result. Norman, how do you think? First of all, how do you assess so far 
how you know the the, the women known as the squad and the, the progressives in the house um, they're, they're dealing with I think very complicated situation trying to fight from within the Democratic Party from on the floor of the house uh, and still maintain really progressive positions. How do you think they've been doing? Well, overall, I think they're in their own uh, tactical space where, for instance, they were able to use some leverage towards uh, at least uh, putting some holes in the the uh, uh, PAYGO straitjacket that Nancy Pelosi had imposed that was limiting or uh, almost eliminating the capacity in many cases to have uh, affirmative uh, public investment and programs to help people with money. Uh, so I think overall the squad, and now it's a bigger squad, they're playing a good tactical role, but that's not our job on the outside. We should be pushing harder. We don't have the uh, constraints. And this is true of Bernie too. You know, Bernie to some extent, even though he's speaking wonderfully and articulating well, Bernie Sanders is somewhat in a political box. You know, now he's fortunately he's going to be chair of the Senate Budget Committee, but he has a relationship with Biden and so on and so forth. And activists on the outside, we need to be, uh, if you will, more uncompromising. We need to be more demanding. We need to push uh, more emphatically and demand more. So uh, I uh, feel that we should be willing to criticize members of the squad. There's no question about that. But at the same time, we shouldn't be pointing any loose cannons at them. We should be identifying the, uh, if you will, the political enemies, which are uh, not only the blue dog Democrats, but a hell of a lot of members of the almost 100 member Congressional Progressive Caucus who are not progressive. And uh, at Roots Action, we're already researching which ones to primary. Uh, Matt, same question. There, I know on the internet right now, there's some people calling the squad the fraud squad, sellouts. There's a lot of pretty strong language. What's your assessment of how they've been doing? I mean, it's so early. It's impossible to to really say yet. Uh, I, I that whole um, uh, brouhaha that's uh, going on within you know the sort of left online circles is a massive distraction for those people but i think it's not a huge issue for people overall um you know the if you leave new york san francisco and washington most people aren't even aware of a lot of these things that are going on um you know it's it's again i i i just really think it's going to come down to big meaty pocketbook issues do, do they actually forgive student debt? Do they come up with some kind of actual real, um, you know, solution to problems like that? Or is it going to all be cosmetic the way it was mostly was during the Obama years? And do we have continuity with, you know, those same militaristic policies, you know, drone assassination, uh, you know, indefinite detention, all these things that, that Biden was very, very much a part of in the last his last tour in in, uh, in the executive branch, um, you know, if if they continue with that and AOC just becomes, you know, kind of a lodestar for more cultural issues that, um, you know, that to lobby Biden on some of those things, then then that's when we'll know we have a problem. I, I just that's what I'm worried about is where. It's where the uh, the kind of the spirit of the Sanders campaign, if that doesn't continue in some fashion in a pretty aggressive way, then that, then I'm, I'll be worried. Really, issues like uh, ending 
canceling student debt and uh, quick action on $15 an hour federal minimum wage. This is going to be really important bedrock economic issues. And the Biden campaign, and I'm already sick of hearing how he's got a great cabinet because he's got women and people of color. Biden campaign loves that stuff. Uh, Hillary Clinton loved that stuff four years ago, you know, and on the stage be a lot of women and people of color. And yet he stu she stood for, and we have to make sure that Biden, if we can prevent him from being, that he not be standing for essentially back to the future status quo. I mean, can you think of a more status quo slogan than America is already great, you know, which Hillary Clinton used? That was her response to make America great again. And who knows what Biden's uh, slogan will be, build back better, we'll probably have to go to the ash can. But whatever those sloganeerings are, the fact is we need fundamental economic justice. And that's a bedrock of the Bernie Sanders campaigns. And we've got to fight for it. Uh, Matt Norman, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very, very much. Hey, let's do it again soon. And thank you for joining me on the analysis.news podcast. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage.